Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The little drummer girl is over. It's time for a little double cross. Her name is Charlie. Charlie. May I call you Charlie? You're wonderful. She's an actress who's about to play the role of her life. Who do I play? Yourself. She's being used by one side. You are one of them. You show their lives, their morals, their risks. To deceive the other. I offer you the, the hospitality of our revolution. Welcome. She's become the bait in a game of brutality and betrayal. You son of a... You killed him! Where nothing is what it seems. We both know who you are, right? And no one is safe. Whoa! She's gone. Gone. I have a mission for you. What makes you think they will use Charlie? They won't trust her until she's killed. And who kills Charlie? Us or them? I want out, and I want out now! The international bestseller is now the motion picture thriller of the year. Diane Keaton, the little drummer girl. All right, Pete. We had a great time with the movie last week, don't you agree? Oh, yes. And I know, came in from the cold. Great yes, stuff. Yes, it was exceptional. And I know next week, both of us having seen the movie for next week, we're going to have a good time with that, I think. Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Yeah. 
And given that Park Chan-wook actually did a six-part miniseries of this one, Little Drummer Girl, I would like to ask you, do you think we should talk about that tonight? (laughs) (laughs) The Park Chan-wook version? (laughs) Yeah, I haven't even seen it, but I'd really rather talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, so it's interesting. Uh, It was brought up on our uh, Discord group. Why did you guys pick this movie? Why did you pick the 1980, was it 1984, The Little Drummer Girl, uh, to be part of your John Le Le Carre series instead of some of his um, better-known films that are are probably worth remembering more than that particular one? And that was a good question. (laughs) Because initially, it wasn't on our list. I think we had talked about The Constant Gardener or The Russia House. Yep. Or one of his more recent ones. Although I think we were trying to spread it out over kind of a longer period of time, so it wasn't all clustered. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we settled on this one because neither of us really knew anything about the story. Neither of us had seen it. And the fact that George Roy Hill is directing it, and we've talked about him several times in the show, we like him. And Diane Keaton's in it. We like her. Klaus Kinski is an interesting actor. It sounds like, with all of that, a promising place to uh, a promising film to include in our series and it's a 6.1 on the imdb stars which you know fits your right above yeah fits your six star rule the six star rule exactly so all of that led to uh, a film that should fit just fine in our series and you know let's face it okay it wasn't the best film but hey (laughs) (laughs) At least now it's checked off of our list, right? It is checked off of our list. And I've seen a lot of other Le Carre films, I think, now that I'm kind of going through. Not a lot. I've seen enough to know that I'm a fan of most of the adaptations. And I was thinking it might be interesting to look into why we feel like this one doesn't hold up to those. And I am ill-equipped to do that because I've read so few of the books. I have read none of his books, and uh, I, I think okay. that it's an interesting series to jump into without having read anything. Yeah. Um, I feel like I probably should start reading some of his stuff. I actually have started Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Uh, I just haven't gotten around to finishing it, but I, I've been enjoying it so far. Well, here's what I here's what I know of the books, is that they are incredibly challenging to adapt. They're like, um, you know, they're like the, the Jack Ryan books, right? I mean, they're just incredibly dense. Uh, with craft and character, a ton of characters, crazy big casts, re- requirements if you're going to do, you know, at such an ambitious adaptation. Uh, and uh, that makes Lacare incredibly challenging to adapt. That's my understanding of it. Now, in what I have read about the adaptation here, the adaptation, they, they tried deeply to get as much of the book into the movie as they possibly could. And point number one, my hunch is that makes it feel slo- like a sloppy adaptation. Like it was just there was too much. They tried to chew too many marbles. Having okay, so I I walked into this film. I will acknowledge putting this film at a disadvantage because immediately before I watched this film, I did watch Park Chan Wook's six part miniseries that he had done for television a couple years ago with Florence Pugh and uh, playing the Diane Keaton role. I do think that uh, Loring Mandel, who adapted it, he did a pretty good job of adapting the actual content 
you know, he gets the points in there. Everything is largely there. What really is missing, and I, I, you know, I hate to say it, but I feel like George Roy Hill really was not the right the, the right director for this because I don't feel like in what I've seen from his films, and we've talked about The Sting and Bush Cassidy and Sunday's Kid on this show, he handles a sense of comedy in his stories really nicely as far as kind of the way kind of comedy action. I, I haven't seen anything of his that really stands out as uh, a heavy um, kind of mystery or or an action thriller sort of thing. Like, I, I don't get a lot of the sort sense of thrills from the films I've seen of him, mm-hmm. from him. And so I feel like when I watched this film, a lot of it felt a lot more jovial and casual than I feel like a spy thriller should have. I feel like Loring's script had some of the elements in there. Like I could see, especially after having watched the longer version, when I could really see the time they took to develop the relationships and the love stories and the way that everything folded across kind of the entire scope of everything. Uh, This one, those pieces are there, but I don't think Diane Keaton is fully bringing all of the stuff to the screen that she needs to. And I don't, I really don't think that uh, George Roy Hill is putting the the sense of a kind of presence that he needs to in context of this story when he is kind of directing this and adapting it into something that should be full of of life. Isn't that interesting too? That he uh, he essentially sucks the the intensity or the sense of threat or impending doom out of this movie. That's where uh, I really struggle. But I think that that the spirit of kind of cavalierness in this film that is in the, not necessarily in the hands of George Roy Hill, but but in uh, well, I guess it is. It's deeply in what. I consider a miscast uh, in our central character. I think Diane Keaton was the wrong person for this movie. Uh, I didn't, I I felt like she was drunk for most of the film. I I feel like we didn't get a sense of uh, her having any intellectual agency in uh, this character of Charlie at all. Like it was just her performance was thrown on screen and uh, and and as a result, I think she just sort of sucked any of that intensity, that threat out of all of these intense and threatening situations. Uh, you know, the, I really enjoyed watching in her first performance, uh, Dana Wheeler Nicholson uh, as Katrine. And this was, uh, you know, we only see her for, I think, a couple of scenes. <laughs> She's kind of she drops off a briefcase. It's a bomb. And but she looked much more the part to me than and and she carried herself in in a different sort of uh, demeanor than uh, in, in such a way that I think was uh, less distracting than Diane Keaton. I think she was just unbearable in this movie for me. Diane Keaton brings a certain Diane Keaton presence to a film, I feel. And in this particular one, it, it she has such that kind of that casual kind of dingy nature to her Daffy. anyway. Yeah, yeah. It, it really comes across that way. In in this case, it was kind of frustrating that that it played in a way where I'm just like, I don't feel like I, I get it. You're supposed to be kind of this young actress, but it just doesn't come across in a way that worked for me. And and that was frustrating, especially knowing that the role as written, was kind of designed for a British 
actress in her early 20s, like 21, 22, is really kind of the zone that the story um, was written for. And knowing Mm -hmm. that Diane Keaton walked into this nearly 40 years old, it really, I could tell very easily that she was pretty old for this part and acting too young for it. And it it just didn't work for me. No, You know what's interesting, though, about that? Like, what is it about her performance in this film that I lose from her performance in the Godfather movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, would you would you agree that there is a notable difference in her presence on screen between these two families? Well, yeah. I mean, it's obviously a different type of story, um, right? In this particular case, I feel um, it's an interesting comparison. I hadn't really thought about it. I guess in the Godfather films, I feel that um, she's not as unfocused like i feel like she's a little more of a focused character she's not necessarily in line with everything that michael is doing in the film and it ends up she ends up as she kind of pieces everything together she smartens up and is really able to figure out everything going on and that really comes clear over the course of the of the three films um, particularly those first two specifically when she's a younger actress she also wasn't the lead and maybe that's part of it i you know she was a smaller part of those stories uh, as mm-hmm. they were being told largely about the men in this particular case i mean she's carrying this film and we're relying on her as kind of this this uh actress struggling in this world to try to navigate it and figure out what's going on who to trust how to play the character, all these different things. And I just felt like there were a lot of times where I'm like, she wasn't always making the right choices the way that she was playing the role. And and sometimes when you see her playing it, it just comes across in a way where I'm like, well, are you are you taking any of this seriously? I, I can't tell because the way that you're coming across on screen. That that's the the sense that I got that it was like every single scene was another opportunity for workshop. Like we're just we're just trying some things out. The sequences where she's being uh, interrogated by Mossad, there for me at at one point it's laughable. They're all sitting in a room and they're kind of uh, trying to be nice, and then they're being really intense. And I I just feel like I'm in an improv workshop. It just was was um, just so daffy and loose and um, carefree. I think was the word you used. I. I I like that. And that just did not deliver on any of the intensity, the severity, the sobriety of, um, you know, in from the cold last week. And uh, what I know of some other of the Jolica films, <laughs> right, I, right. I really struggled with it. Just as a, you know, uh, playing, um, you know, director and recasting the way that we think would make sense. Um, because Florence Pugh, was 22 when she played the character in the uh, the TV show. And so and that that's fit. That's legit. That yeah, totally fit. Plus, she's actually British, and it's written for a British actress. I don't think it's a huge loss to have her American. It doesn't change things too much. I think it ends up being okay. Although I just, I can't help but feel like it just made more sense to have a, an actual British actress there when I watched her. But just as two options, these are two British actresses who were 21, in 1984, when this was made, oh, we're uh, playing a game right now. We're playing a game, yeah. Oh, Who, I wasn't. That was no, that was a terrible setup. I was I, not aware yeah, of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm setting okay. this up in a bad way. So here we go. All right, two options for you: Nicolette Sheridan okay. or Natasha Richardson. Both 21 in 1984. Nicolette Sheridan. Nicolette Sheridan's definitely the more 
blonde bombshell sort of look. I have a harder time seeing her on stage in kind of the British roles and stuff. I but, really do. Because she definitely was doing a lot more of the modeling and everything. So maybe she's not as good a choice. But um, certainly, when you look at Natasha Richardson and you see images of her in the early 80s, yeah. you go, oh, yeah. That's the sort of person that I feel could have been in this role that would have worked really well. Like really well. I think you're, yeah, I think you're right. I think she's probably, uh, she's probably the one. I look at Natasha Richardson, I can't shake her, um, or, or Nicolette Sheridan, I can't shake Desperate Housewives. And that sort of defines uh, who she was for me. So, uh, but yeah. I'm, I just feel like that puts it in a place where I feel like things are going to move a, lot, a little better. We still have the George Roy Hill problem, unfortunately. Yeah, we're we not, don't erase the George Roy Hill no. problem. Yeah. Here was my question that I was going to ask you, though. Because in context of kind of our bigger questions about these stories, this one is a little bit of a different type of story for uh, Jean Le Carre, because it's less about kind of the intricacies of what's going on with all the spy ins and outs and everything. It's definitely more uh, kind of a kind of a terrorism story. And I, I thought it was a little it, it's an interesting one to look at in the context of the stories that we have in this, uh, certainly with these three, because the spy who came in from the cold, while not a George Smiley specific story and uh, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, which is a, 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 a George Smiley specific story. Both are spy films with a lot of kind of just focusing on the convoluted way that the world of spy works, right? That's what mm -hmm. that's all about. This one is really a, a kind of a, a, a story about a group that is trying to stop a, a terrorist act by infiltrating. And you get really, it's a larger story about kind of how acting and love and everything kind of are such a, a, a an, an essential element of all of this stuff that's going on and it's more it ends up being more of a character story i felt the journey of of charlie over the course of this and um so i guess that's a, i don't know if it's a, a big question but i mean do you feel like by changing the focus of the story to have it kind of more this way, we're getting kind of what we expect out of a John le Carre story? Or do you feel like it's just a little bit of a sidestep from what we're expecting and wanting out of one of his tales? Well, this is why I feel like I'm ill-equipped to, to answer that question completely, because I haven't read the book. But as a film, I think that is a central failing, because it directs this spy thriller as if it's a, a rebound movie off of the world according to Garp, right? This is this is putting the onus of responsibility in, in Hill's camp. Like, it was directed as if this is a relationship movie inside the mechanics of spycraft, and the weight of the narrative needs it to be more about the mechanics, mechanics of spycraft. Uh, so I struggle with that, for just sure. To, just to clarify my point, though, I mean, this story and the one in the six-hour version, it's the same story. I mean, it really, there's not big changes made. It's obviously, there's a lot more kind of fleshing out within the longer version. Um, yeah. But essentially, this, I mean, it is a fairly decent adaptation that kind of hits the points of the story. I just don't feel like there's any convolutions. Like, there's there's nothing that's, you're, you're never wondering who's the, who's the, you know, is there a double agent or anything like that? We pretty much know. You know, we've got the good guys on one side. We've got her uh, in the middle. 
asked by the good guys to pose as a bad guy, and then we have the bad guys on the other side. And that's pretty straightforward through the whole thing. There's never any point where we're like, ooh, was this, that was a double agent? I had no idea. Like, that never comes up. So it's, exactly. a, it's a pretty straightforward story. Well, I, and I guess that's what I was missing, right? Not knowing, not having seen the six-hour thing. I think you, 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 maybe it's just that he directed a bad romance. <laughs> saying like maybe it's as simple as that like i don't i don't feel like their relationship merits two hours and ten minutes of the like you say lack of convolutions what i got out of this movie was this weirdly doe-eyed too old 20 something in a mid-30s shell uh fell in love with a guy that deeply did not merit it and uh, she was led astray in so many different directions without any sort of culpability, any, uh, like rational, uh, believability. And, uh, and, and that, and they tried to hide the shortcomings of her, uh, meanderings behind this relationship stuff or, uh, in the guise of, you know, her driving a bomb car across this, the border or whatever. Like it just, none of it felt like it earned, um, you know, it earned intense treatment on screen. And it's really frustrating because essentially at its core, I mean, and <laughs> it's so hard to talk about this coming off of the much longer, much better version, because I, I keep referencing points in my head. I'm like, oh, wait, no, that's not yeah. in this version. I have to remember that. But the whole idea is... It's not is, in this version, but I have to imagine <laughs> that, oh, here's a thing that is in this version, and they spent 45 minutes on what got two-minute treatment. I have to imagine those kinds of things happen, like that we actually get to see and live in some of the discomfort of the relationship for a time. Oh, certainly. And, and that's what I really l- loved. Okay, like here's an example. We have a moment in this film where where uh, Charlie is, uh, she's sleeping with uh, the man she's fallen in love with, who she knows as Joseph, we know as as Getty, or the the Israeli team called Getty. Um, she's, they're sleeping together, and as they're laying there, she's kind of walking through his chest and kind of going, where'd you get this scar from? And looking at all his scars and kind of getting right. to know him through the scars, right? It's kind of a cute scene. Um, in a scene that doesn't carry a lot of weight other than it's a romance scene and they're finally getting it on, right? Great. I am big in favor of those scenes. Later in the film, we have a similar scene where she's now laying in bed with Khalil, essentially at the direction of the Israelis, right? This is kind mm-hmm. of at the end of the film. She's now with him and for a, a lot of reasons. Anyway, the specifics are she's laying with him and she's doing something similar. She's looking at his body and kind of asking him about the different scars that he has on his body, right? Those two scenes play as, uh, I suppose you could say, are meant to play as a setup and payoff for the way a relationship is is the way she's involving herself with these men and creating these relationships and falling in love with them through this particular intimate act where she's kind of looking at at their bodies and kind of talking through the different scars and and getting to know them and it becomes a real personal intimate connection between them 
and it's meant to be kind of a reflection. So we see her doing it with the man she loves at the beginning, and then she's we see her doing it with the man she's pretending to love at the end of the film. Sure. It's it's an interesting reflection because we see her doing that, but the way that it's set up, there's no drama in any the way that any of it is connected because at the beginning it's just like a sex scene like they're just they you know fall down and finally get to it and they have this little conversation and at the end it it doesn't it kind of comes out of nowhere right we know she's in bed with him we know she's supposed to go um take the batteries out of her clock or her radio so that that's the signal for them to come get him but instead she's kind of going into all this sort of stuff and so we're like okay so does she love this guy now like why is why is she going through all of this right now there's never been a connection developed with Khalil so we don't have that same that same reference point referencing back to that first one where it was a theoretically a kind of a love moment and so this is an example of how this film doesn't treat those moments as with the weight that they should have to allow for the real connection that the film is trying to make by putting one earlier and later in the film you know what i mean how did they handle yeah and i don't want you to belabor this point particular but i'm curious how you would contrast I, i assume those important sequences in the series well yeah and, and and you know i don't want to spend too much time talking about the series specifics I do. but i really do tell me more about florence i love her i i have a this is total side note but as i was getting ready to come in here i was i ran i ran out uh into the kitchen to talk to my wife real quick and she was watching a video I'm like oh what are you watching she's like oh florence Pugh just posted a video on instagram live um she's at home making butternut squash <laughs> so she was like watching her make butternut squash. I'm like, that's really adorable. I bet oh. Diane Keaton's not doing cute videos like that. No, is Diane Keaton doing nothing because <laughs> oh, she treats man. the world with such. <laughs> but but that film, and this is where you get a by allowing a film to really breathe by doing a six hour miniseries. Yeah, you have time to develop the relationship with Joseph. At the beginning, so when they finally have that intimate moment when they're in bed together, it really means something. And you really see Charlie falling for this guy, and it makes so much sense. And then in the end, when Charlie goes off, or I shouldn't say the end, in the middle when she goes off to to train in, in uh, Lebanon and kind of starts falling for that side, and she finally meets Khalil, he is a mesmerizing figure. I mean... I was falling in love with him. He just it was so <laughs> enrapturing just watching this guy. He had amazing screen presence. And it was easy to see Charlie, like, all of a sudden start clicking with him and find a connection with him. And uh, and when they have that intimate moment together, it becomes an actual intimate moment. And you see this parallel between the two that allow for you to kind of get this real sense of of this journey of love and how she's kind of creating i mean the whole thing is about her you know playing the theater of the real and how Mm -hmm. she does so much of that through herself and and not by necessarily finding the ideals i mean they don't pick her because she believes in the things that they believe in they pick her because she's an actress and she can kind of create these emotions and fall in love and and that's what it's really about is being able to fall in love with the person that you're opposite 
even if you don't love them. But she, and uh, it's this sense of this actress who really is kind of believing in this role that she's playing. And it just, it works so well in that film and, or in the, in the longer version. And that's what I end up missing here is when I see these moments, part of it is the fact that it is rushed two hours, but I feel like George Roy Hill doesn't know how to handle romance, doesn't know how, how to handle those intimate moments. So when we see Joseph and Charlie having an intimate moment, I don't feel like there's a connection there. Plus, yes. he was horribly cast, and I, I wouldn't fall in love with him either. It was, right. it was really <laughs> right. hard. Well, and, and that's, a, I think, a big challenge of the romance, right, is that um, it, neither of these relationships were earned. They were both, like, uh, you know, out of uh, just a weird stereotype mechanic. I think the first one was that weird sort of love at first sight kind of thing. It was yeah. a little bit of mistaken identity and a little bit of you're a hunk on the beach and wow, that mustache. Uh, <laughs> and and then the second one was, you know, I, I know what you're going to ask me to do. And, it, you know, it was a it, it was sort of a, I, I don't know, a little bit more Stockholm syndrome. Like it was just confusing, but neither of them felt earned to me. And yeah. uh, and, and perhaps it, you know, I, I want to own my own ignorance. I don't know enough about the the, um, you know, uh, PLO Israel, like the, the sort of the uh, political uh, scenario at the time in the 70s. I don't know enough about it. I know it's bad and it is, it's hard and there, a, a lot of people died and it's also very complicated mm -hmm. and I sure as hell didn't learn anything about it here. Yeah, this film is really relying on you to kind of know what's going on in the real world at the time. And yeah. uh, I'm same with Lacari's novel because it came out just a year before this. Uh, but I think that it is kind of banking on that. And honestly, uh, my understanding is that when the book came out, it was fairly controversial because by presenting both sides in a fair way, he, he presented both of them, um, he, the good and the bad, the justice on both sides and how awful both sides are. And because of that, he offended both the Palestinians and the Israelis. And it's interesting that uh, the film largely does the same thing. You you kind of see the good and bad of both sides, you know. Um, and I, I thought that was pretty interesting. But, um, I mean, it was a period when there were a lot of films coming out about, the, about everything going on in this part of the world. And, uh, you know, from more serious fare to kind of Chuck Norris sorts of movies. I mean, it was all over the place. It just was, uh, you know, a, a fodder for, for projects because of the conflict. And yeah, I'm not um, as up on it either. Um, I just know it was, it was quite an issue. And like you said, this is not the film where you're getting anything out of. There are a lot of people who are, I'm sure, working hard in this movie, even if it doesn't come across on screen. Sure. Can we talk a little bit about some of the other people that we were excited to even see? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, do you want to talk crew first or cast? Well, I wanna, I'd, I'd very much like to talk just cast because sure. of how much I love Klaus Kinski. And <laughs> when he is like, I don't know. There's something about this sequence where he comes up to to Joe and he's like tucking his shirt in and just starts slapping him about the head and face. And I thought, there's Klaus. There's Klaus. You know what? I don't even care what this movie's about anymore. Show me more Klaus going crazy on a guy. 
Yeah, he is a, a peculiar actor, and you know, I, yeah. I haven't I haven't seen much of his work. Uh, I think most of the stuff I've seen from him was stuff that he did, um, like uh, Fitzcarraldo, A Gear of the Wrath of God, a lot of the Werner Herzog types yeah. of films. You know, um, I don't think I've seen. Gosh, I'm looking through his list. I don't know if I've actually seen him in anything except those movies with uh, Herzog. Um, is that possible? Could I have not? Well, I guess, I mean, he was a, he had a bit part in, in for a few dollars more. Yeah. So technically, I saw him in that one. Nosferatu. I haven't, I haven't seen it. <laughs> oh, oh no. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. Um, that's, see, that's where, that's where I have him. Um, uh, is uh, Nosferatu and um, <laughs> Fitzcarraldo. Fitzcarraldo and, uh, is a that's yeah. a great film. What a crazy man he is in that one. I really enjoy that one. Yeah, um, but that's it. Uh, like I, I don't think I've seen anything more than that. And um, I gear the wrath of God. Uh, one that you shouldn't see, but I think you of all people might actually like it is Crawl Space. And I can't believe I've seen it and you haven't. Um, Uh, but it is uh it's a kind of a locked house nazi horror with klaus kinski which now i think should put that right at the top of your list that's hilarious yeah Uh, he's an interesting crest the six star (laughs) oh (laughs) good to know good to know i guess my question with him was when when he popped up on screen i was like do I, does he strike me as somebody from from Israel? You know, does he fit with you know this kind of mishmash of these people that were that had uh, you know come to? I, I think we meet them all in. Do we meet them in Munich the first time? I can't remember where we meet them. Um, yeah, where I, do they they take? Yeah, I don't know. I lost uh, track of where they took her and put her in the uh, apartment. And well, the, yeah. they they when he. Grabs her. I guess that was uh, Greece because they went to Athens to see all the right. stuff. So it's it's Athens where we uh, we they all meet her, but or she meets them. But I can't remember if we had seen them before and where it was. I want to say it was Munich or somewhere in Germany. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I, I I guess because I associate him so much specifically with uh, just kind of Germany, I, I guess I don't associate him with Israel, but I guess there's no reason I can't. It was just an odd choice because he clearly has a German accent, you know, and just I mean, maybe that was what it was that kept do you think tripping me up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he uh, there was no effort to to hide that. No. And and I don't no. know. I mean, I guess maybe that's a uh, maybe that's a a common accent for Mossad in the Middle East. <laughs> Maybe. I, don't, I don't know. Uh, so, it, it, he anyway, he was fun to see in this movie. The other one Definitely. that really stuck out to me, and I found myself thinking, this is a guy I want to see more of right now. It's uh, uh, David Suchet as um, Mr. Bine, uh, it, because we're obviously fans of his and he is poorly used in this movie definitely need to go see some other great movies if you i mean even some other what's the christie character uh, that he is so widely known for poirot poirot right yeah. hercule poirot yeah, yeah. uh he's he's fantastic all around yeah he is he's a 
underutilized in this film. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, we've talked about him on the show uh, and the bank job. That's right. He popped up in that one. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you had mentioned uh, Dana Wheeler, right? I you did. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned Wasn't that her. fun to see her show up, right? Just right in the beginning. She popped up and I was like, I totally recognize her. And yeah. I was like, where do I recognize her from? And they're like, oh, she's in Fletch. Yeah. That's, that's my <laughs> reference point for her. I know she's done a lot of other stuff, but uh, it'll always be Fletch. It'll always be Fletch. And she's, yeah, it was great. And it's it's another bit part. Um, I, I don't know. It's it's frustrating, again, to have watched this uh, after the the other version, because I'm like, oh, her character has a lot more fun in the in the longer version like she gets to be a little crazy you know she Which doesn't is have what i was one. looking for like the moment you she walks out of that building and it cuts to them with that quick cut of them eating breakfast and then she's in the street she's hugging the driver and the thing blows up and she doesn't make have any sort of emotional reaction i thought okay i'm gonna anchor on her as a tool of the antagonists in this movie and it's gonna be great i'm very excited because she is a character of opportunity and yep. then, like the wind, she's just gone. <laughs> she's gone. It's, Terrible. And, and this is this is a curse of watching older films because we know who she is. But at the time, this was her screen debut, so nobody would have known who she was. They would have just seen, oh, she's kind of this this cute blonde who they have involved in this. But now, in retrospect, we're able to say, oh, she's obviously going to be doing more. Because, you know, because of who she is. But I don't necessarily think that's true in this movie. I, I think it's OK to to have this character because she's a cute blonde and does some terrible things. Those two elements make her an interesting character of contrasts. Right. It makes yeah. her a great villain. And in that regard alone, I, who cares that she was in Fletch? Obviously, we do. But who cares? She would have been better used in this movie. Uh, and I think they, it was a missed opportunity. Yeah. She was token villainess. Yep. I agree. Shameful. Uh, who's, who, are you, who are you excited about? Well, uh, the one I'm most excited about, I'll be honest, more so than anyone else we have on the list, uh, is a bit part. And it is uh, good old Bill Nye. He's a I kid. had so much fun seeing little baby Bill. <laughs> Baby Bill. Yeah, I agree. Such a little fella. Yeah. yeah, he's still tall. Tall drink of water, Bill, but lots of hair. That was fun. Yes, absolutely. No, what a, what a nice surprise that was. I always love Bill. He's great to see. And, uh, you know, he, he doesn't have a lot to do here, but just enough to do something interesting. So I had a fun time with that. You know, this was an able cast that I, I feel like, in short, was just used meekly. It was an okay cast, honestly. Like, Yorgo Voy Voyagus, Voyagus? I'm not exactly sure how to Voyagis? say his name. Voyagus? I'm say that, yeah. Uh, I felt like he could have been a little more. I wasn't thrilled with his performance as Joseph. Uh, you know, I just was like, eh, okay, I mean, you were fine. But is that the way that they wrote the part? You know, I, certainly I feel like that's part of it. I feel like they could have done him a little more uh, service than to to boost him up and give him a little more reason to kind of actually fall for her because initially like he falls for Charlie clearly to lure her in he's kind of like the lure to bring her in to this whole thing but he clearly falls for her and that's the story the side of the story that I never really got 
uh, enough out of this version. I, I can see that. I feel like he was a, an appropriate tool of the era. You know, he was an 84 hunk. And that's, I I, I bought that. I, I feel like uh, his part was written, um, you know, thinly. But yeah. I, I never got a sense that, that you know, he wasn't up to it. Uh, and, and I feel like he could have been more believable in that sort of uh, Middle, East, Middle Eastern Tom Selleck-y kind of way. Yeah, maybe. If if the script was a little stronger with yep. the way that his character was portrayed and the directing was a little stronger, uh, maybe. Same thing yeah. with Sammy Frey, who plays Khalil. Like, interesting face. I was really intrigued by this guy, but no way, in no way did I fall for him as much as I fell for the same character in the TV movie version. Like he just he he had some presence, but I never got to know him enough for it to make sense to me. What, how did you feel about his big twist at the end? Like, did you believe the twist? Were you surprised when it turns out the the van driver was, you know, the guy? Um, I mean, I obviously knew it was obviously coming. you knew. right? Yeah, I, I knew it was coming. Um, I like I I honestly I like that whole twist in the story. I think it works that he is this mysterious figure who is posing as other people to kind of keep his eye on her and to yeah. really get a read. I think it works in context of the story. I did I mean I guess I guess I do too. <laughs> I guess I agree. <laughs> uh I I I just um I feel like by that point in the movie we're it, it's just barreling toward the end and she's in this kind of car switching driving back and forth and they're just uh, like i that that whole crazy experience when she's giving the briefcase to the to the uh professor and mm -hmm. they're in you know trying to intercept it and they r rush her out and they make her go through the motions of the lines and then they get her back the that the whole mechanic of the the climax of that operation was uh, lost on me. And that leads us to the climax of the film where it turns out that, you know, um, you know, Mossad was going to have their way with all of these, um, all of these people that she had apparently started feeling an affinity for again. I, I just didn't uh, feel like I bought it. And that was sad because some of it was pretty gruesome. You'd expect, you know, to feel more about that. Well, as far as the crew goes, uh, I feel like we should talk about a few of them. Sure. Wolfgang, I don't know, True, Trau, you Sure. Is the uh, cinematographer. And I don't remember, honestly, how much of his work we brought up when we talked about the um, Das Boot miniseries that we... Um, talked about the film version of that obviously right. on the show um but uh i felt like there was a kind of a, a gritty reality to the cinematography i didn't have any real striking issues with it no i i agree with that i mean i think the that um it, i think it was shot well but it was not shot to the to the level of uh sort of extremity that man who came in from the cold was like i feel like that existed on the razor's edge of intensity like using all of these great dutch angles and this movie like i didn't have any problems with it but that's not great praise no and and i guess that's the funny thing is i feel like the cinematography works and it's funny that i bring up his work that he did on tv with das boat because honestly as i think about this some more i felt like it fits well with kind of generic tv cinematography yeah like, and it's funny because cinematography now for TV has become so cinematic. <laughs> yeah. Because I feel like right. you watch the cinematography in Park Chan-wook's version of this, and I feel like it's so much more cinematic what he's doing in that particular film. Par for the course. This It's so hard to 
deal with all these comparisons, but inevitably they're going to be there if people watch both versions. Uh, and what would they think about the uh, music? Dave Grusin is definitely, uh, I find, a composer who I like quite a bit, but his his music feels very much a part of the uh, the era, you know, very 80s. And I like um, elements of this particular score, but if I'm going to pick um, him, I know. Let me let me phrase it this way: If I'm going to pin, pick a composer to write me a score for a spy thriller in the '80s, it would not be Dave Grusin. Like it makes <laughs> sense for Tootsie; his stuff's great there. But and the Goonies, absolutely, it's fun adventure, kid music, and stuff. It really works. The little drummer girl, I just, I, I felt no energy from the music throughout the film. And all of a sudden it'd be like, dun, dun, dun. I'm like, oh, we're getting into a suspense moment here because his music, he's really kind of hitting it. It just, it really didn't work for me. Yeah, I, I regret to say, and I, maybe it's, maybe it's clear. I'm a fan, a straight up fan of Dave Grusin and, as a musician and as a, a composer and not of this one. Uh, it just yeah. did not give me the joy. <laughs> <laughs> that I get from, or the complexity, or uh, certainly not of what we got uh, in in the score from from last week, or in the score from scores from some other Lacare. I mean, again, the Russia House peak awesome score. Um, so I'm I'm I guess I'm with you, and it makes me sad. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking through the films that he's composed, and I think if you go all the way back to 1975 when he did Three Days of the Condor, that had some good. Yes elements that felt a little more thrilling to me. It worked a lot better. And then if you go forward all the way up to The Firm in 1993, another one that I felt had some good thrill, kind of that thriller tension music. I just don't feel this film carried any of that. So I think you got to go a decade in either direction to really find his music that that actually fit with this type of movie. You know, the thing is, I he's not. I think he's done some amazing stuff, but he is like his career as a musician is so much broader than just writing music for movies. That uh, you know, sure. I I tend to give him a lot more space <laughs> to to breathe. This was not a great one, and he's still stunning as an instrumentalist and a performer. Oh, and, I mean, yeah, he he's very much into kind of the the jazz music and everything that he can do. It's, it's real great, but just in this context of this film, it doesn't work. Also, Fabulous Baker Boys. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But that, see, that is exactly the type yes. of score that works so well for him because it fits exactly with kind of where I think he his is. heart he's lies. He's writing yeah. a score for the central characters, which are him. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Blooming onion is what that is. Uh, anybody else we want to talk about, or shall we talk about Janet Stevens? So Janet Stevens, at the very end of the credits, you do see a note that says "Special thanks to Janet Stevens, 1950 to 1983," uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. And so I was like, "Who is this Janet Stevens?" Janet Stevens, it turns out, was an American journalist, human rights activist, a translator, and a scholar of popular Arabic theater. She had lived in Beirut during the uh, whole uh, Lebanese civil war. And she kind of chronicled all the experiences of the, the refugees and just all of these massacres. She actually died in the bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Beirut in, on April 18th, 1983. Um, so uh, she was actually called by Palestinians the little drummer girl. 
Hmm. And she inspired her, her life and her work inspired John le Carre, who had befriended her and because she had given him a tour of the area and everything. Um, she had, um, uh, or he, she had inspired him, befriended him and was really kind of the, the, the nugget of the idea for this particular character, the little drummer girl. And what's interesting is it on the on the flip side, you hear other things that inspired her. So that's the special thanks at the end. But then also um, Vanessa Redgrave was partly inspiration for this particular character. I can see John le Carre thinking about her as a British actress and, and being the one who could kind of fit into this. But then what's interesting is that he actually um, also was thinking about his half-sister, Charlotte Cornwell. Um, and based it on her, who she was an actress, and he he actually hoped that she would um, get to play this part. But of course, they needed a big name and uh, went with Diane Keaton. So, but anyway, interesting little tidbit for you. Interesting little tidbit. Mm-hmm. How to do at the box office? George Roy Hill had an even twenty million dollars to put his Lacary adaptation together, which is about forty nine point two million. In today's dollars, the movie was released October 19th, 1984, opposite Crimes of Passion, The Razor's Edge, Stop Making Sense, and Thief of Hearts. Unfortunately, this movie did not really find its audience, only earning $7.8 million at the domestic box office, or $19.2 million in today's dollars. Like last week, I couldn't find any information for international markets, so that leaves this film with an adjusted loss per finished minute of $227,000, unfortunately. When was the last time we had a good, a good, juicy, adjusted loss per finish minute? A couple shows ago. Bamboozled. Oh. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> to say. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, it how happens. to do an award season, right? You got this fantastic Diane Keaton. She's got to have won something, right? She's awards material. She's awards. Says. She's she, that's right. She's a blank canvas for award money, right there. That's Diane you know, she, Keaton, yeah, Oscar winner, uh, and George Roy Hill, Oscar winner. That's right. Well, this is a this is I think speaks to how well this did not connect with people. It had no wins, only one nomination. The nomination was at the Edgar Allan Poe Awards, where Loring Mandel was actually. This is odd. He was nominated for Best Motion Picture, and I'm assuming that's because it's it's the Edgar Allan Poe Awards, which are for writing, and so I'm mm-hmm. assuming that it's just, they give it to, they call it Best Motion Picture, even though it's the writer getting it. Right. Uh, anyway, Lost, um, the film that won was A Soldier's Story, uh, which is a, it's a pretty interesting uh, film that Norman Jewison directed. It's not my favorite, but I think it's definitely better than this. The other film that lost to a soldier story was Beverly Hills Cop. Oh. Yeah. An interesting right. pairing, those three films. Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> might, might I suggest that uh, somebody could, could do a little <laughs> viewing trilogy of watching those three together and then wonder what the heck they just did. And maybe just skip to next year. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We we had a wash this year. I don't even want to talk about it anymore. Uh, All right. Well, uh, this is a great movie if you would like to be inspired to go watch The Sting or Butch Cassidy and maybe Annie Hall. And maybe the Little Drummer Girl TV miniseries directed by Park Chan-wook. I know that's going to be the next thing that I do. 
Uh, it's got to be on my list. I'm totally inspired. Maybe tonight, Andy. Maybe tonight. It's streaming on the Sundance Now channel. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Well, what do you think? Should we flick chart it? Let's do it. I am not optimistic. <laughs> I'm not either. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and uh, you can see the list of films we've talked about on this show. If you tap the link, the word that says flickchart in your show notes, it should take you directly to this movie, where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, we have The Little Drummer Girl or Viridiana. Viridiana. Viridiana, please. The Little Drummer Girl or The Brood. <laughs> I will the take brood. The Brood. Yeah. The Little Drummer Girl, or the 1999 remake of The Thomas Crown Affair. Uh, Thomas Crown. I will take Thomas Crown as well. The Little Drummer Girl, or Fast Company. Now it gets harder. I, I'm i going to say The Little Drummer Girl. And I think it's I, just, you know, the the spy story over the yeah. car racing story, I think, is where I end up falling. Uh, you know, yeah, just, the car racing story that was not a good car racing story. It was it was fine, it was, but uh, I already forgotten most of the movie. There you go. That's the C. There you go. Because yeah. yeah. it's too fast, Andy. I'm, an, I'm with <laughs> you. I'm Little Drummer Girl. The Little Drummer Girl or Christmas in Connecticut. Oh, Christmas in Connecticut, yeah, please. Hands down, yeah. The Little Drummer Girl or the 1973 Battle for the Planet of the Apes. This is the final of the five original films. I will, I will watch say that Planet first. of the Apes. Yeah. Yep. The Little Drummer Girl or Windy and Lucy. Oh, give me Windy and Lucy. I'll take I'll take a slow paced film about a girl who lost her dog. I will take the little drummer girl. Really? <laughs> Wendy and Lucy was a good one. Really? You feel strongly about it? Because we're now I, in the I we're feel in the strongly weeds. about it. I know, but I feel strongly about Wendy and Lucy. I think it was much better. There's a lot more uh, interesting character stuff just dealing with this woman trying to find her lost dog. All right, fine. Take Trust me, dog. you put those those on, you're going to rather watch it, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's what we have to imagine, is actually, it's not that you have two movies and one TV. It's that you have two movies and two TVs, and you just have to figure out which one your eyes are naturally drawn to. <laughs> yes, exactly. The Little Drummer Girl or Outbreak. Very timely. Oh, for crying out loud. That helicopter. I'll, I'll, I'm still taking Outbreak. I am, too, but I regret it. <laughs> We'll always forget Outbreak. They don't call me trash bag for nothing. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. All right, next up, Little Drummer Girl or The Hound of the Baskervilles, 1939. I'm going to go with the dogs. I am too. I'll take that. Well, that lands the Little Drummer Girl in spot 419 on our chart. 419 out of 446, which puts it at a 6%. Pretty wow. low. Pretty That's low. pretty low. It doesn't uh, surprise me at all. How'd it do on your list? Interestingly. Very similar. It landed in spot 4,066 out of 4,308, which is also a 6%. What? What a synchronicity of math, Andy. Mm -hmm. I will say that you and I and you liked this movie better than I did, apparently. (laughs) This ended up at 1,401 on my list out of 1,442 movies, which is a 3 a 3%. I like this half as much as the rest of us did. Uh, and so according to, if I'm to go by the algorithm for letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a zero star movie. Uh, I don't have a problem going with a one star. Zero stars seems pretty low, but I could go one star. I could be pushed up to one and a half. There are some some people, some faces 
I like seeing in this thing, but I'm not going to watch it again. You know, it was pretty disappointing. I, I, I don't feel like it warrants a one star. I feel like, you know, there are elements that work. There's a story that I find interesting that that kind of goes through here. It's not told in a very effective way, but I still think that it it's an interesting enough story to to at least warrant it a one and a half. So I'm going to give it a 1.5 stars. No heart. Though. I will lean in with you. 1.5. No heart. I stand with Andy. That's where we are. Where do we go from here? We're going to be wrapping up this short little John le Carre series with uh, a much more recent adaptation. Not his most recent, but certainly one that got quite a bit of buzz. It is the 2011 Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy with Gary Oldman playing George Smiley. Oh, we get Smiley. We finally mm. get a solid Smiley. It is going to be a fun one. I cannot wait to talk about that film, especially as I just also watched that TV miniseries from 1979 with Alec Guinness for the first time. So it will be nice being able to compare uh, these different films with their miniseries um, uh, associates, I guess we could call them. And not get distracted by how much we had trouble with it. What joy that might be. Here, here. When the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Now, we were living at the bottom of the barrel tonight, so we went up. We, we surfaced to try and find some positive <laughs> reviews about this movie. And it turns out there were some people who really, uh, who, who, I don't know, they sort of liked it. I guess I there are people who, who are enthusiastic about it, but their enthusiasm is, is not infinite for this movie. <laughs> You know, I I would love to have these people watch the miniseries and just get their take yeah. on comparing the two. Okay. I feel like a lot of these people are the sort of reviews where, like me, when I talk about, you know, The Last Starfighter or something, you know, it, it probably isn't doesn't deserve my high praise that I give it, but it came at me at a point in my life where it still connects oh, with me. So totally. I, I think that there's a lot of these in here. I do you mind if I go first? I got one that Take actually has a has a point that I feel like I would like your reaction to. Ooh, I know. Uh, this one comes from just a guy, and who says it ain't what it appears to be. From uh, April thirtieth, two thousand nineteen. If you know anything at all about books and movies about espionage, intelligence, and related subjects, you will know that appearances can be deceiving. Hence the terms wilderness of mirrors at all. I have seen this movie three times now, and I have three completely different reactions. One, when it came out, I thought it was a reasonably good action movie with a lousy female lead. Could not understand why they picked Keaton. Two, later on, saw it again and thought it was rubbish. Three, saw it 38 years after it came out. Now, I think Lacare is having us on. He's in the movie after all. I think he's taking the piss out of movie stars who become, quote, activists. Lines like, don't you want to do something more than sit-ins in Trafalgar Square or giveaways? Do more? Heck, she was switching sides. What she wanted was more positive reinforcement and someone to give her the lines. Remember, she was down to doing crap wine ads. Her fame had a leak in it. 
I think Lacare very cleverly made every know-nothing celebrity who, of course, supports the downtrodden look like fools. Well done, sir. Well, that's quite a thesis. It is. It's an interesting perspective to take on it. I, I don't necessarily agree with it. I, I don't think that Lacare has such little... Uh, thought of actors. I think that it became a fantastic way to kind of tell this story about the world of spies in a way that I think is incredibly obvious by pairing it with an actress. And it's all about playing roles. I, I think that it uh, is pretty clear. I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I don't necessarily buy into this whole thing that he's just... Well, you know, I imagine you would have been more of a staunch uh, kind of advocate of that angle based because I can't imagine that being what the story is more or less about and having that not be a, a major thread in the miniseries. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I that's think there would be a lot more of that. Yeah. Not there. All right. right. All right. Well, what do you got? But still, it's interesting. Yeah. I've got a five star by Sandy Berman. Oh, good old Sandy. She says, Sandy. too good to be missing. I'm going to I'm gonna try to do my Sandy voice, okay? Oh, good. Sandy, welcome to the yeah. show. Here, here she comes. This film is unavailable from Blockbuster or Netflix or the library system. It is too important to be abandoned. I don't know why, if it is considered politically incorrect or too hot to handle, or what? John Le Carre wrote without an agenda, showing both sides, warts and all. I plan to loan it to as many people as will watch it. And I would just like to note, her format is VHS tape. Wow, fantastic. So, she will be, so when Sandy comes to your door with her VHS tape, be ready. <laughs> I'll be there. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season nine, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Ooh, this should be fun. <laughs> we're starting with the big series, Robin Hood. <laughs> well, I mean, aren't they all based on some Robin Hood story in one way or another? Yes, but any idea which specifically? Uh, well, I'd say uh, Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, the silent one, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, that terrible 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, they're all based on, I would say, probably the same standard tale. Robin and Marion, I would say, is probably based on a different take. Uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, too. Oh, God, I can't believe I forgot that one. Okay, how about Spike Lee? Uh, aren't they all original? No, not one we covered this season. It's a biopic. Oh, Black Klansman! can't believe I forgot that. We have covered so many great movies that all started as books. Books like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Europa Europa, Spore, or Arsenic and Old Lace. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. 
I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.